matter how high-tech, highfalutin, lazy, or foo-foo America gets, we will never stop hunting and fishing. This is The Hunting Quest. Hunting Quest. We take one hour of every week and talk about our favorite things in the world, hunting and fishing. You'll get tips and help on the fishing environment locally in the DMV area. Plus, we're going to have fun along the way. This is The Hunting Quest. And now your host, Mike Tippin and Bennett Malin. Success. Hey. You know, we haven't made a joke in a while about me messing up the intro or my name being in the intro. We haven't made that joke in a while. I know, because you haven't screwed up. I know. I just wanted to bring it back one time. Oh, okay. Well, let's hope that we don't have to do that this time. <laughs> no, we're doing, we're doing good. We're off to a great start. We're did recording. Did you hit record? I did. <laughs> I actually have it set to where it auto-records now, and I don't have to touch any of it. Oh, look at there. Smart. I, got, I got smart and decided to have the computer do it for me. There you go. You can automate things. Why not? <laughs> oh, Jesus. Computers are smart when they work right. That's right. Yes, <laughs> That's right. Yes, sir. So, tonight we're joined with Mr. Mueller. Jimmy, how are you doing? Doing well, gentlemen. It's great to have you on. Thank you again for being here. We really appreciate you giving us an hour of your time, or however long we end up going. (laughs) Thanks for for having me on. Absolutely. So, Benny, so I'm going to, for those of you who don't know, I'm going to explain how we met you. Um, Benny kind of brought me he I, I showed up late to the Harrisburg show and he was like first thing he says is he's like Mike we we got to go see Muller Chokes and I'm like what and he's like come on we got to go I'm like dude I haven't put my stuff down he said come on we got to go <laughs> so he takes me over to your booth and says this this is this is amazing stuff so I got to talk to you but Benny had already talked to you so yeah um so we got, you know, obviously I, I bought one of these. Nice. Um, and I think this one is the, the passing one that you said that yep. you recommended for me. Yep. Um, and, um, and I, you know, immediately, you know, when, when I got to meet you, Benny's like, we got to have him on the podcast. And uh, so we asked you, you said yes. And, uh, and here we are. So. Um, Very cool. And it's funny, uh, <laughs> I think the funniest is how this all worked out. So we were at the show, we had a booth over at Wild Valley over in the Outfitter Hall. And uh, one of our other buddies at Mouse River up in uh, the Dakotas, he, <laughs> Craig comes over and he's like, man, will you guys come over here to this Mueller choke tube booth with me? He's like, I was over there looking at him and talking to the guy and you know, they seem really cool. But like, I don't know if I'm just like, I don't, I don't know if I just got caught up in it. Or what, you know, like, I want somebody to come over there and look at him with me. Tell me if I'm being stupid, if I want to buy one of these. And we're like, all right, dude, you know, we'll walk over there. Just, I think it was the Friday, like, before the show opened. And so we came over to your table with, I think it was five or six of us. And we come walking over, and you started telling us about everything. And <laughs> we're all looking at each other like, dude, I'm sold. Like, I'm, <laughs> I'm buying one. I didn't come over here to buy one, but I'm buying one. And I was like... Hell, I think I'm buying two. Um, so yeah, I think I think just about all of us walked away with one, at least one that day. I think Todd bought one or two. I think I bought two. Doyle bought one. Craig bought one. We're like, dang. And then we're walking away, and you know, going back to book hunts and this, that, and the other. And we're like, 
well, damn, that guy's having a good show. The show hadn't even opened yet. <laughs> we're like, shit. <laughs> yeah, we're like, damn, this Friday's set. <laughs> but, I mean, yeah, this, and I'll let you kind of explain more of the choke side, you know, kind of what you did for us there at the show. But, I mean, they are absolutely incredible. Thank you. Thank you. Yeah, yeah. I went on to sell out by that first Sunday on four different styles. I'd have my staff overnight more to me to the hotel, and that happened three times. Oh, that's awesome! So it, it, that show is always great. Every I've been very blessed. Every single show that we do is is very cool, and uh, we do very well at it. So I, I enjoy getting there early and talking with people like yourselves, and, and just teaching people. You know, absolutely. Teaching is still my favorite part of the game. Mm-hmm. What What all shows did you do this year? Um, so we did Maryland Outdoor Waterfall Fest in November. Mm-hmm. Um, I did National Sporting Clay Association, the national championships in San Antonio, Texas. That was the end of October. Um, and then we did, um, oh gosh, what did we do since then? So then we just did this month, we did Ducks Unlimited Banquet in Manhattan on the 1st. Drove down to Harrisburg, Pennsylvania, did GAOS. Drove down to Charleston, South Carolina, did the Seawee, and just got home last night. Oh, God. <laughs> I, know we, I know we had another couple shows in between there somewhere, but to be honest with you, I don't remember. Uh, it's just all a blur at that point. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. That's awesome. So tell us a little bit, you know, how you got started, what you do, and, you know, kind of how you got into it. So, you know, I shot... I was born in 69 and, uh, you know, I born raised here on a 900 acre salt marsh in my backyard pretty much. And so in 1975, I shot my first green wing teal flying with a 410. And, you know, back then, of course it was lead. And, uh, and then, you know, fast forward many years, um, 1992 came around. I wanted to become a better wing shooter. So then in 1993, I really, dove in and got into sporting clay competition because I was told that, you know, if you shoot sporting clays and you start to get to sort of a 50% ratio, you become a much better wing shooter. So I'm like, okay, well, let me get into this and, and see if it can help me. So I dove in with both feet. And, um, you know, the first thing that I noticed was everybody was shooting an over and under you know, for the most part, there were some guys shooting gas guns and, and, you know, semi-autos, but most of the people were shooting over and unders, the ones that were serious about the sport. So I went out, I bought an over and under immediately. And then, you know, I bought a vest and shell pouch. And then I'm like, okay, I need to have the best choke tubes, you know? So at the time I had no thoughts of even making choke tubes. I was in aerospace defense manufacturing. I was a master tool maker, um, doing a lot of work for, for aerospace. Hmm. And um, so anyway, make a long story short, I bought two modified chokes um, for my Browning. And from one of the top choke companies that are recognized in the industry. And uh, it's what everybody was using at the time. So I buy these two extended modified chokes and I go out and I pattern them. One pattern's like a skeet and one pattern's like a full. I'm, like, <laughs> I'm like, 
oh man, they must've mismarked these, right? Because that's the first normal thing that would come to my mind, being a machinist. So I go in the shop the next day and I mic them and they're both 20,000s for my bores. And I'm like, wait, that's impossible. I'm like, oh no, my barrels must be screwed up. So the next day I go out, I pull the chokes out of the barrels and I shoot threads, you know, at the paper at, you know, 15, 20, 25 yards. And I'm like, huh, point of impacts, dead nuts on both barrels and both barrels pattern really close to each other with no choke in them at all. I'm like, I'm like, what is going on with these two chokes? So make a very long story short, I went into the shop the next day and I started measuring all the geometries, roundness, concentricity, squareness, cylindricity, the length of the taper, the length of the parallel. Um, I even ran a federal profilometer on the um, surface finishes to see what the finishes were and make long story short, both chokes were very different. So the only thing that was similar to those chokes was the overall length was the same and the exit diameter was 20 thousandths from my bore. Other than that, they were both extremely different. And I'm like, oh my God, a choke's not a choke. You know, based on diameter and thousands of an inch constriction, which is what everybody, even to this day, goes by, right? Oh, my choke is 695, it's 710, it's 5 thousandths constriction, it's 20 thousandths constriction. Well, what I proved was that thousandths of an inch constriction is grossly secondary to the geometry inside the choke. But then furthermore, what I learned upon more studying and more testing was that every gun patterns totally different with no choke in it at all. Therefore, it requires different geometries in the choke for the particular gun it's in based on how that gun likes it, right? Mm -hmm. So what I mean by that is all three of us here could have three different guns, right? And we could all buy a particular choke from a given manufacturer and in your gun, Mike, it might shoot amazing with ammo A. But in, in, you know, my gun, it may shoot absolutely horrific. And in Benny's gun, it doesn't shoot good at all with that ammo, but with another ammo, it shoots pretty good, right? And then on top of that, they all have ammo limitations or they have flaws or they have issues, right? They're heavy, they rust, they loosen. They build up with tons of carbon or plastic. They definitely don't shoot the way they're marked, uh, you know, on and on, right? And we're not even getting into ported chokes. We're just talking about <laughs> well, well, the list goes on and on as to the flaws of choke tubes in the market. It was like that back then, and it's still like that today. And I've got to imagine it's going to continue to be that way. And the reason for that is because choke companies – have never really, nobody's ever done what I've done. But with that aside, choke companies basically just make the choke the same for all guns. And what I mean by that is they don't take into consideration anything I just talked about. They don't take into consideration the different geometries, the different surface finishes, the different exit diameters, the different parallel lanes, taper lanes, gasker clearances. They don't, they don't look at any of that. What they do is they take a choke out of a gun, a factory choke, or they look at what a barrel takes as a choke, and 
they just make a choke for it with a certain overall length or a certain extension amount sticking out of the barrel and then they just put an arbitrary taper length in it and an arbitrary straight parallel length um, some companies actually make a full taper with no parallel length and then they make the exit diameter based on what we just talked about you know a ski choke is five thousandths tighter than the bore um, improved cylinders ten thousandths light mod is fifteen thousandths mod is twenty and it basically goes in 5,000 increments, okay? Mm-hmm. All the way up these days to, my gosh, extra, 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 super duper. <laughs> yeah. You know? Laser beam. <laughs> and, and then after that, we get into the new turkey chokes, which we could talk days about. But, you know, basically, they've never really looked at how a particular individual make and model gun likes it's choke. Okay. So, so that's sort of like layman's terms for everything's been done a particular way, but it hasn't been done correctly. And so that's what I've done because going back to 1993, I had to buy 10 of these modified chokes from this company to get two to pattern, right? And out of those two, sadly, I had to mark one of them with black magic marker because in one barrel it had it was off high and left um, pretty, pretty dramatically. <laughs> Jesus. Like 20, 25 yards, it was high and left, six inches. And in the bottom barrel, I think I remember it, I was lucky that the point of impact was actually good. So it had to stay in that barrel. So I marked a black magic marker so I didn't mix them up. So then I called the owner of this choke tube company. I explained to them who I was. And I explained to them what I found. And he said, you bought them, you own them, kid. And he hung up on me. So at the time, I had spent every dollar I had on these 10 chokes trying to get the best I could get for my gun. And my dad, being a master toolmaker, called the guy back on the phone with him and tried to explain it to him. And he started yelling at my dad, swearing at him, and hung up on my dad. So my dad took the chokes and threw them in the garbage, said, go and shop. <laughs> so... The next day, I did just that. I went in the shop. I made my own chokes, and I patterned them, and they looked really even and consistent. And I'm like, did I get really lucky, or is it about geometry? And it was about geometry. Um, but then, of course, moving forward, I went with 22 different guns, 13 different bore diameters. I ended up firing 12,000 rounds on paper, mud, water, clay targets, live birds, high-speed photography, and looking at every single thing I could imagine to try to figure out what this magic is, you know, cause it was like, it wasn't a can of worms. It was a dumpster of worms. And <laughs> it, was, it was insane what I learned. And what I learned was that every choke on the market shot different. And furthermore, every gun shot entirely different with those chokes in them. So like if I took five choke manufacturers, and I took a modified from every single choke manufacturer and I put them in the same gun, they all pattern different. And then when I changed the ammo, they all pattern different. So I'm like, this is huge, man. I'm like, where do I start? So that's what I did. I came up with what I call GSPG, gun specific patterning geometry. And what I did was I started with one gun. I took the chokes out of the gun. I shot threads at paper. Then 
I started making chokes all different dimensions. I changed every geometry that you could imagine and some that you couldn't even imagine. <laughs> really crazy, crazy stuff. I said, you said cylindistris, whatever, however you said that word, that's a, that's an adult word. <laughs> I think that was the word at the show that I was like, I'm sold. This dude knows what he's talking about. That's not even a real word. <laughs> is basically envision a banana, mm -hmm. right? Well, if the, bana if the banana was dead straight, that would be cylindrical. But a banana is not straight, so it's not cylindrical. Okay, it's sort of bent, right? It, it's round, but it's it's bent. Right. It's curved. It's not dead straight and round. So that's cylindrical. But, and then along with all the other geometry. Right. right. So anyway, outside of the geometries, I learned that every single gun likes something different. So then that's where this started getting really big, right? So I take the chokes out of this one gun. I shoot it at paper at different yardages using one really good premium ammo that I knew was the best. Then I made a choke with a particular overall length with a particular taper length and a particular parallel length. And then I made like 12 different chokes. And the only thing that I changed was the parallel or the taper length. And then I made 12 more chokes that all I did was change the gasker clearance. And then I made 12 more chokes that all I did was change the surface finish of the taper. Then I made 12 more chokes where all I did was change the surface finish of the parallel diameter. And then what I did was made 12 more chokes with all different exit diameters. And then I made 12 chokes with all of that taken into consideration, but I changed the overall length a half inch on every one, all the way up to six inches. Okay. So this is the type of thing I did, right? And when I found the most amazing, consistent, lowest shot-to-shot -shot deviation pattern that that one gun could produce, I drew the blueprint for the choke for that gun, moved to the next gun, started all over. So you can oh, my God. <laughs> right? So, so basically, it was like, if I remember right, it was like, 12 times six, right? So 72 different chokes for one gun. Jeez. And then I did that for 22 guns that had 13 different bore diameters. Oh my God. That's, that's when I started learning like a choke's not a choke and a choke's not a choke for this gun, you know? So, so then once I figured all that out and I said, okay, using this one ammo, that I know is, you know, basically the most consistent ammo across the board. And, and it was a lead target ammo, mm -hmm. but it was incredible. And velocity is all the same, components identical, very consistent, very high quality components. I'm like, okay, I've got the most amazing patterns through these 22 guns with 13 bore diameters with the chokes I just found that I figured out. And now, what's going to happen when I change ammo. So I did that and I shot every ammo that was on the market. Um, even ones that are no longer made. Um, I shot ammo that like my dad and my brother brought home from Remington gun club, like back in the forties and fifties, which I still have. Um, I shot Winchester double X's from back then federals. I mean, Olympics, Olympia. I mean, I shot ammo that nobody <laughs> even knows about, right? Right. And what I found was that 
okay, every ammo obviously patterns different. They all act different, but there's a correlation of what these guns really like in regards to the choke. And then when I figured out that, okay, this gun loves this choke geometry and it loves these constrictions and these lengths and all that, then I realized that even the worst patterning ammo in the industry patterned amazingly well. So then I was like, oh, cool. I actually just changed more than just the choke and the choke that the gun likes. I just revolutionized the crappiest ammo on the market because now, <laughs> right? So, so what I started learning was, okay, even though I took crappiest patterning ammo and the most inconsistent ammo and made it a lot better than it's ever been, I tell my customers and my friends and my students, if you take the crappiest patterning ammo in the market, you put it through my chokes, it's still going to pattern crappy, but it's going to pattern the best it can through mine. You know, and that's the way solid. I explain things, right? Mm-hmm. And, but if you take premium ammos that are truly really good and really consistent, they absolutely shine through my chokes. Like, like to the point where you shoot my chokes at a duck or a goose or a clay target at a really extended distance, and you can't even believe what you just saw. I mean, it's like shooting lead, but no, we're shooting steel or bismuth. Mm-hmm. And it's like, this is impossible. You know, a 50-yard mallard, you pull a trigger, that just, like, dies. Like, you shot it with an ounce and three-eighths of lead fours. You know, it's it's awesome. Or or you shoot a cripple on the water at 40 yards, and it's just an explosion, and duck is dead. And people are like, what are you shooting, TSS? I'm like, no, it's just steel fours. Why? They're like, impossible. I'm like, <laughs> <You know? laughs> so, so, no, it's not impossible. You know, back, I tell a lot of people back in the day, you know, I've, I've shot a lot of ducks with lead. Uh, and, you know, when steel, like, really first started coming about, I, I remember pretty much Remington, for the most part, was the two and three quarter inch steel fours and the steel twos. Um, and I remember that copper, you know, high brass. And, <laughs> and uh, I still got a bunch of them in the basement, the silver and green box, right? Oh. And um, everybody said that you can't kill ducks with steel. This stuff is worthless. All we're doing is pulling feathers. Birds are flying off. They're dying. We're not killing anything. And it was true. I mean, if you shot a cripple at the water on the water at 25 yards, you might as well have shot him with a slingshot. It was like throwing pellets at the duck. It was disgusting. But it wasn't the ammo. It was the chokes in the barrels because we were shooting what? fixed choke falls right mm-hmm. and and some people had fixed choke modifieds and a handful of people across country had you know fixed choke improved cylinder you know that was pretty uncommon unless you're shooting a skeet gun or an upland gun but of course us waterfowlers what are we shooting you know super uh, we're shooting winchester model 12s with you know fixed full chokes and we're shooting winchester i mean uh remington wing masters fixed full chokes and we're shooting you know, Ithacas, and we're shooting all these fixed full choke guns. And um, it was just blowing the heck out of our patterns. My dad's Winchester Model 12 Super X Super Speed 3-inch duck gun, heavy duck gun, that barrel was almost an eighth of an inch thick of, of chrome molly 
chrome molybdenum tungsten like barrel mm-hmm. the whole thing bulged on the end because he literally was shooting steel twos and it, it literally blew the end of the barrel out mm-hmm. after he bulged a barrel it patterned a lot better <laughs> <laughs> we were like hey my dad started killing ducks with the steel and he was like hey something's to this he's like i just i just swaged his barrel out and now I'm starting to kill birds and, and you can see the noticeable difference on the water. Mm-hmm. And of course that was back in like, you know, the late eighties, right. Before I even got into this with the choke thing, but I didn't forget that. So it, it was cool. It was eye opening to see what it was and what the real culprit was. Right. I say I want to backtrack just a little bit. Yeah. To when you were talking about, so, you know, you were saying phase one with the gun, you pull the chokes out, shoot them with just the threads on the yeah. paper. Does that not, I've always been taught that if you do that, you are going to destroy your barrel. Total myth. Really? Well, let me explain why. So the reason that came about was when sporting clays got really big in the nineties, people chokes sucked. Okay. Yep. This is why we're talking about this right now. I shot every choke in the market back then, and they all sucked. Um, I have no problem saying that. And, you know, even if you had really good ammo, there were major inconsistencies. And what happened was when people were shooting a target inside 20 yards, what they were doing was they were pulling the chokes out of the guns and shooting threads at the targets. Well, what happened back then, if I don't know if you're familiar with sporting clays back then, but Mm -hmm. we called it skeet in the woods. Because <laughs> no, nobody knew what a sixty-yard rapu was, or a chandelle, or a, or a you know teal, or anything like that. So what we were doing was course setters were designing their courses to simulate hunting, which, by God, I wish it was still more like that sometimes. But we set targets in the woods, with with you had to shoot through bushes and through trees. And you had to wait for little windows in between the tree trunks or they would set things up behind hay bales and you would have to shoot them in the little windows. And it was really cool, but it was like skeet in the woods, right? Mm -hmm. What people would do to get an advantage was they would pull their choke out of the gun to get the biggest pattern possible. And they would shoot like 100 targets with no choke in the gun. But then what would happen was they would take that gun home and they would put it in their gun cabinet. And a week later, two weeks later, a month later, they would take it out to go shoot again. They'd go to put their choke tube back in the barrel. It wouldn't go in. And they're like, oh, my Lord, I dinged my threads. It's no good. I destroyed my barrel. Well, that's not what happened. What happened was, as you know, shooting ported chokes, for example, <laughs> all the disgusting carbon that builds up in the plastic. Yep. All that carbon builds up inside the threads. And when it's fresh and warm and new, it's soft. It's just a little gummy, but it's soft. So you can put your choke in and there's no problem. But when carbon hardens, what do they make diamonds out of? (laughs) Compressed carbon, right? Compressed carbon. Okay. Carbon gets really hard when it dries. Well, if your threads are full of carbon and it hardens, guess what? You're not going to get the choke in. That choke ain't going back in. So then you've got to go in there and you've got to scrub it all out with cleaners and croil and all these different things to soften it back up 
to be able to clean it up, to be able to get your threads in. It has nothing to do with pellets hitting your threads. So let, let's talk about that for a second. So the barrel bore diameter coming out of your gun, let's say it's uh, 720 for a round number, right? Well, the, the large diameter where the choke tube is bored out and threaded to go into your barrel is like 900 thousandths of an inch, 850 thousandths of an inch. So if you think about this logically, even if you're not good at physics or math or science, think about the fact that you've got a, a pipe that's 720 thousandths of an inch in diameter and then you've got a square shoulder at the end of it, like the end of your barrel would be. Mm -hmm. And that goes out into your choke tube area. That's almost an eighth of an inch per side larger than your bore. Now, with something traveling over 600 miles per hour, 1,100, 1,200, 1,300 feet per second, how would you ever imagine a BB to come out of your barrel and go, <clears throat> and hit the threads in that length. Absolutely physically, scientifically impossible. Hell, it's not even out of the wad yet. It cannot happen. Yeah. If you look at Joel Strickland's huh. high-definition, high-speed photography through that phantom camera, mm -hmm. you can see that the wad and the shot don't even start to expand at all unless it's several inches from the barrel. Yeah. So knowing that, there's absolutely no outward movement, at least for several inches out of the barrel. How could you ever think a BB would ever ding your threads inside the barrel? It can't happen. By the way, that Joel, Joel Strickland's phantom camera, high-speed oh, yeah. stuff. Oh, it's incredible. Oh, it's so cool. The way he set that up with the black background, with the lines drawn, the white lines. Yep. Put, I mean, it, it just... I just kept watching it. My jaw was like, this is beautiful. I mean, I didn't even care about anything else. I just, <laughs> just want to watch pellets fly through the air. I wanted to watch the shot strings, the BBs, the wad, the gases, the smoke coming out around yep. it. And then he did it all the way out to the target at 40 yards, which was just incredible. Yeah. yeah. You know, and, and you know, you look at, I don't mean to skip around and, and I'm not, I'm not bashing anything. I'm just repeating results. And, you know, the thing that came out of that test that, like, sort of burned my britches as a hunter, you know, was the fact that Pattern Master had the longest shot string out of every other choke. Mm -hmm. And I'm like, oh, you know, I won't tell you what I said. But I'm like, I've been shooting <laughs> Pattern Master since they first came out, you know, before 93. And I'm like... One of the main reasons I bought it was because they said it was 80% shorter shot string than every other choke in the industry. And I'm like, that's incredible because short shot string, you put, them on, put pellets on a bird like a pancake. Incredible, right? Well, as time went by, I proved to myself that wasn't accurate, but I didn't have it in high-speed photography like Joel did. And now Joel proved that it was like 30 feet and the longest shot string in the industry. And I'm like, you know, that's not cool, man. When you just come out and make stuff up just to sell things and lie to people, that pissed me off mm -hmm. in English. And I was like, that's not okay. You know, so I'm not pulling them out of the group on purpose. I'm just saying it's just one of many things that have been pulled over our eyes. Um, the world's been pulled over our eyes. 
the marketing hype has been there. It's still there for many, many companies, ammo, guns, chokes, decoys, waiter. I mean, you name it, right? Right. There's marketing hype no matter where we look. But in the ammo industry, the choke industry, the firearm industry, it's been prevalent and it's been running rampant ever since like the 50s, you know. And what I learned after doing all this testing and all these different things, what I learned is that it's the same old, same old from what it's always been. Because what's happened is all of the coaches, the mentors, the book writers, the ballistics experts, right? All these people have spewed information from back then. They've spewed it forward. And all of the students of the game have spewed it forward to us. And we believe it. We want to believe it because we think they're telling us the truth, you know? So we look at the marketing, we look at the hype, we listen to the hype because we think they're telling us the truth. Mm-hmm. They're not. So, so that's that's where I got into making my own chokes for yep. my own advantage, and I had no interest in selling my chokes to anybody because it was my advantage. <laughs> yep. <laughs> and, and you know, come two thousand eight, when the economy tanked, I lost all fifty three aerospace company customers. I'm like, what am I going to do? And I'm like, well. I know I have the best choke tube in the world because I fixed every problem chokes had and improved on a lot of things. On top of that, I'm going to patent it, bring it out of the closet and see if it'll help pay the bills. And it literally exploded and took off overnight. I said, it's still just growing ridiculous. I mean, it's patented feather light chokes for clay targets. Mm-hmm. And I patented that in 2009, December of 2009. I brought it out of the closet and it literally just went crazy. It scared people. <laughs> in the At first, they were really like, oh, Jim, this is incredible. Thank you so much for bringing an amazing product to market. We're so happy for you. It went from that to, you know, what kind of voodoo magic is this, Jimmy? <laughs> And I was like, hey, man, there's room for everybody, you know, don't worry about it. And um, so that's where we're at today. And I took the that gun-specific patterning geometry, all I learned, um, all the things that helped me become a ballistics expert. Um, I took all that knowledge and went full circle and put it into my duck, goose, turkey, and big game hunting chokes. And that's what you see today. And that's what's happened over the last year and a half um and it's really become prevalent in the industry all over the world already and it's growing at amazing rate so you know it's funny when you come out with a product that's really good and does what people say it does people like it <laughs> you know yeah. yep. go figure yeah go imagine figure. that <laughs> and then i couple it with the best warranty in the industry because i don't want people to deal with what i dealt with and um so you're not going to hang up on people. Yeah, with that warranty in place, with what the chokes are, it's a win-win-win for everybody. So, I'm I'm proud of it. I said I, you had me from well, I mean, thirty seconds into that that sales pitch when we were at the show, and I mean, all of us were just like, these are the greatest things I've ever seen in my life. Yeah. 
you know, between that and the the video that you had up playing at the booth too, of that yes. the sea duck at like seventy yards getting absolutely smashed. I mean, you can see, you know, in a video, everything looks like the distance kind of weird. And, oh, yeah, well, that's 25 yards, but it looks really far. No, that bird is out there. Yep. And no, you see the gun swing, 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 and all of a sudden that bird gets smacked by a freaking cinder block. And it's like, oh, my God. Okay, yeah, I'm in. Yeah, and what, what I've taught people is like with the shot cam on the gun, I have, an, I have seven of them now. <laughs> I'm, I'm sort of addicted. Um, and, and shot cam doesn't sponsor me. I'm not on their pro staff. We have nothing to do with each other. Um, I bought one of the first shot cams that Dave brought into this country at a sporting play event. I think it was the Gator cup at quail Creek. And, um, you know, I just love it. And they are, they are cool. They're awesome. I don't go hunting anymore unless it's on my gun. Yeah. I I look so forward to coming home and reliving the hunt. I yep. mean, it's just my favorite part. I really love it. And seeing what I'm doing right and wrong with the muzzle. Mm-hmm. And, and hey, did I shoot behind that bird in front of it? Where was I? How come it didn't die? Why didn't I hit it? Yep. You know, or whatever. And and I learn a, a tremendous amount. And I use it on my with my students, too. It's, it's a picture's worth a thousand words, right? Right. You can talk all you want, but when you see it, the light bulb goes on. Yep. And that's what it does for me, which is why I love it. I learned a lot from the shot cams yep. too. I mean, it, it's, you know, um, we went out and <laughs> Benny and I actually went. Oh God. We, we it was had a bad a day. Horrible day duck hunting. It's like the first day out of the, of the season. And it was just, I mean, we all, you know, there's three of us in the blind and we're shooting and. I, and we're shooting know. wood ducks that are coming over, you know, 10 foot tall grass, 15 yards in front of us at 70 miles an hour. And we're like, oh crap, right here, kill him. Boom, 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 boom. Didn't hit damn, one. We're like, damn, that that's embarrassing. And yeah. A box of shells later, I'm like, I need to go shoot this gun and figure out what the hell is going on with this thing. Yep. So we, we wound up, yeah, we wound up at, um, out at our, one of our kind of, I guess, pseudo sponsors is, uh, peacemakers they've got a, a trap range and everything set up out there and uh we use the shot cam out there and it was really really cool you start to realize i'm way way behind or i'm way over the top of this so mm-hmm. yeah, it was pretty cool so yep. just a little bit there i and uh we're actually going to go do the we're going to do the patterning of your with your chokes on our guns to make sure that we know what we're doing and and make sure that we're shooting the right way because i think it's important to practice so yeah yeah it is and uh you know sporting plays is really the best way to practice for any type of wing shooting or moving target because sporting clays teaches you how to hit a moving target it's not it's not skeet it's not trap skeet and trap are fixed um you know um it's the same thing over and over right it's consistency. It's consecutive. It's, it's the same, it's the same move. It's the same lead. Well, that'll help you on that exact target, but it's not going to help you in real life situations in hunting. Right. Bingo. Sporting clays does. Mm-hmm. And, um, because you could shoot every type of trajectory, angle, speed, distance, you can do all that. And plus sporting clays is just fun. Sure. Oh God. It's fun. Yeah. You could start with a very low gun you know, safety on, of course. Right. And you can practice your mounting, um, moving to the target, you know, I mean, all different things. So it's wonderful. I mean, 
that's how I learned how to how to shoot out to 100 yards, sporting plays. You know, you can't practice that anywhere else. There's no other way to learn that other than doing it on clays. You know, you start on a target, you know, you shoot it. It's a target you can break 10 in a row very easily and confidently. And you move back 10 yards or even five yards. You move back in five-yard paces until you can't hit it. And then you move back up, you figure it out, you move back. And before you know it, hey, okay, I'm at 40 yards. I'm at 50. I'm at 60. Oh, let's do it at 70. Let's do it at 80. And then before you know it, holy cow, I can hit this target at 90 or 100 yards. Mm -hmm. And when you can start to shoot leads like that and connect with a target, control a target, kill it with your eyes before the gun comes into play, then what starts to happen is the ducks just start to become much easier and it becomes, it goes from you're excited when you hit something to, wow, I'm surprised I missed that to, wow, I can't believe I missed that to when you pull a trigger, you expect it to fall. And if it doesn't, it shocks you. <laughs> right. So, so these are all the different levels and stages of, of, you know, sporting clays and hunting. But these are the things that it'll do for you, mm-hmm. you know. And yeah. I'm a big component of that because I've, I've taught it to myself. And I've seen the results and I've, I've learned it. And then over the years of instructing many other people, you know, seeing it happen with them, you know. Now, where, where are you located I live in Connecticut. Uh, I machine the chokes in Connecticut. My storefront, my employees, and my fulfillment center is in Fernandina Beach, Florida. So what I do is we make the chokes here in Connecticut. My shop is 10 minutes from my house. Um, Once they're all done here, um, I ship them down to my staff in Florida. They put them into the bins. They take all the orders off the website, emails, and phone calls. They do all the fulfillment. So uh, Devin and Lauren are awesome down there. They do an amazing job. Um, we, you know, you call us, we answer the phone. You email us, we respond. You place an order before 3.30 p.m. Eastern time. It goes out that same day, every day, Monday through Friday. You know, so that's what we pride ourselves on. We answer every phone call, every email. The only time we fall behind, you know, one day is if, we put out a sale or we do a big show and we're inundated literally with thousands of phone calls and emails in a day. One person or two people cannot get to that. Right. It goes into the next day, but I assure you every single order gets shipped out. So, you know, we, we pride ourselves in customer service. So I, we talked about, we talked about a lot. (laughs) What are the things that I'm interested in? And, and before the podcast, we kind of talked about reloading and we talked about, you know, a lot of things, but, um, I get, I get a lot of questions from, uh, you know, whether it's through, through the podcast or just in general, but a lot of people ask, what do I shoot? What's my ammo? What, what am I going to use? Right. How do I use it? What's, you know, what's my go-to shot shell? And I know what works for me. So in, in my case, I, you know, I'm going to say, you know, I like, I reload my own, but if I'm buying something off the shelf, it's the federal TSS or whatever it might be. What do you recommend? What's your, what's your go-to shell if you're not reloading it, if you're just buying it off the shelf? 
So if, if I'm not reloading, it all depends on whether I'm choosing to shoot steel or bismuth. Okay. So if I'm choosing to shoot steel shot, and, and there's nothing wrong with steel shot. I mean, let's be honest. 88% of duck hunters use steel shot. Yep. And, and that's even after the big, you know, the big upswell of bismuth. Um, all the marketing wonders that Boss has been doing, they're tremendous. They're a great company. They're doing things. They're pioneers of the industry. They're trying to help us as hunters to improve our game. Then you've got Kent Bismuth came out. Winchester Bismuth came out. So you've got this whole big jump on Bismuth, which people have proven, obviously, is better than steel when it comes to foot-pounds of energy or retained energy, right? Mm-hmm. Sure. <laughs> Excuse me. So what's happened was we went from lead to steel. Bismuth showed up for a little while through DuPont, right, or, yep. or heavy heavy shot back when it was heavy shot. Um, and then it went away, and then it was available in Europe um, over in England for a little while, but you couldn't get it here in the U.S. anymore. And then it was just steel shot again. And then steel shot started getting pretty darn good. I'll be honest with you. Um, They started loading it heavy and they didn't get crazy with velocity. And then all of a sudden um, about, I know I'm going off on a little rant here, but I'm I'm going into it for a reason. Um, So with the whole steel bismuth thing, what happened was about 12 years ago, um, give or take, if you remember the lead prices and metal alloys in general went through the roof, a box of high powered rifle ammo that was $9 and 99 cents went to 65 like overnight. Right. Yeah. Right. When that happened, um, you know, let's keep in mind in a shotgun shell, the most expensive component are the pellets. The cheapest component is the powder. They stamp it out of massive sheets, right? Mm-hmm. So basically what happened was the ammo companies got smart and they started reducing the payload, increasing the velocity, and laughing all the way to the bank at our expense. And they started marketing hyper-velocity kills and speed kills jargons and slogans, and we fell for it. Why did we fall for it? Because the ammo companies know that close to 80% of duck hunters don't pull a trigger past 30 yards. Okay. And inside 30 yards, you could get away with light payloads and high velocity. (laughs) Oh, hypersonics, baby. 1700 (laughs) feet per second. Just let them rip. (laughs) Let's break that gun. Yeah. Inside 25 yards, it doesn't matter what you shoot in regards to choke or ammo. The duck's going to die. Right. I mean, you shoot, a ski choke with rock salt and I'll kill a duck. (laughs) I pretty much almost did. So, so basically there's a point when ammo choke gun all matters. And what I mean by gun is I mean, barrel bore diameter, nothing else matters. Right. So the barrel bore diameter matters, the choke matters, the ammo matters, but it doesn't really start to matter until past 25 yards. Right. This is the reason that you can take a 410 with a skeet choke and break 25 straight on an American skeet field. Why? Because pattern doesn't matter. Okay. So with that, 
with that said and with that known, um, getting back to what we talked about, steel shop, right? So back before all of these alloy prices went through the roof and they started taking the pellets out of the shell and increasing the velocity, steel shot was getting really good. They were making like Remington nitro steel. Mm -hmm. They had a two and three quarter inch steel load that was ounce and a quarter at 1275. Now ounce and a quarter is the most steel shot you could shove into any good two and three quarter inch hull, right? They had the yellow base wad um, hulls with the high brass, a deep hull with a deep crimp, with a deep wad, with the right powder, and they could fit an ounce and a quarter of steel shot in that two and three quarter inch hull, and they only pushed it at 12.75. And let me tell you something: with the right choke, with that load, you could actually think that you're shooting lead at 40 yards. It's impressive. I know a lot of people are going to tell me I'm out of my mind. I can show you every day. <laughs> very easily okay i don't care if it's a teal a mallard a brant a goose i'll show you um but then also remington nitro steel came out with the three inch ounce and three eighths at 1300 now i wish they kept it at 1275 1250 but they went up to 13 which is okay 1300 in my eyes is the maximum you should shoot steel shot at um and the reason I say that is because it's the slowest you can buy. If, <laughs> if you can shoot it slower, I would recommend it, but nobody makes it slower. So they will, because I'm really trying hard. Um, <laughs> they will. It's going to go full circle. You mark my words. But basically, ounce and three-eighths of steel is the most you could cram into a three-inch hull, just like that ounce and a quarter in a two and three-quarter inch hull. So what I tell people is, the pellet is what kills the bird, right? Not space, not air, not the wad, but pellets. So if you have more pellets, you have a bigger margin of error and you have a better chance of hitting the bird, which for a lot of us is a challenge. <laughs> and, and you have a higher percentage of putting a pellet into vitals, okay? If you don't put it into vitals, you're not going to kill it. I tell people if you shoot a duck in the back end with a 30 or six, it's not going to die right away. <laughs> so it's certainly not going to die if you shoot it in the butt with steel. Okay. Solid. Don't blame like the steel. Blame <laughs> so, but then of course, ballistically speaking, the ammo and the choke have a lot to do with that, right? If you shoot them in the butt, it ain't going to help. But if you're in the front of the bird, and you're shooting the right choke, the right pattern, you're going to kill that bird at really far distances. But if you're shooting a really crappy choke or really crappy ammo, you could be right on that bird perfectly, never kill it because you're going to hit it with one pellet somewhere or maybe two pellets somewhere, not in the head, not in the neck, not in the heart, not in the lungs, not in the vital. So, so going back to your question, I know that was a long way around, but I wanted people to sort of understand my thinking because people will still tell me you can't kill ducks with steel shot. So if you're shooting two and three quarter inch steel at ounce and a quarter at 1275 and you're shooting the right size shot, meaning the smallest pellet that will get the job done, you are going to increase your hit to miss ratio dramatically you're going to reduce your cripple rate dramatically 
and you're going to start to love life, right? <laughs> you really are. Then on three inch, you're going to go to ounce and three eighths at 1300. Is ounce and a quarter steel shot enough? Yeah, it's enough. The problem is they push it too fast. So it becomes not enough because you blow the pattern out past 30 yards. Okay. So it's not that an ounce and a quarter is bad. What's bad is they push it too fast, which makes it bad. Okay. And then if you're going to punish yourself with three and a half inch, three and a half inch at ounce and nine sixteenths or an ounce and five eighths at 1300. These are the three stainless, uh, the three steel loads that will outperform anything. And the four companies that make it is Remington, Kent, Rio, and Winchester. Nobody else. Those are the only four companies that make that load. Then if you go to 20 gauge steel, Apex makes the best load, in my opinion. It's one ounce at 1250. Why is it the best? 1250. That's the magic. They use great components. Their shock quality is excellent. Um, they're a great company. And that steel load that they make in 20 gauge is incredible. Go shoot it. You'll see. Um, why are other 20 gauge steel loads not good? Because they load them light and they push them too fast. See, there's sort of a consistent discussion here. Um, but ammo companies, for some reason, don't want to listen to it. Um, I'll get back to that for a second. <laughs> Moving on to, so recap, two and three quarter inch steel load, ounce and a quarter, 1275, the best. Um, as far as I know, the only one that makes it is Remington Nitro Steel, and I think Kent made it for a while also. I don't think anybody else does, not that I know of. Then three inch, ounce and three eighths at 1300. Why? Because nobody makes anything slower. So that's the best. <laughs> Then the three and a half inch ounce and nine sixteenths ounce and five eighths at thirteen hundred. Moving on from steel, and by the way, those are the only steel loads I will shoot. Moving on is bismuth. Boss has done a tremendous job not only with their marketing, but also with their components, with their pioneering, with their innovation. They're leaders. They're not followers. So that's basically why I think they're the leaders in the industry when it comes to bismuth. Uh, their quality of components is excellent. Their consistency is excellent. Um, the things they're doing to innovate is by far the leaders in the industry. You know, like they bought a wad making machine so they could make their own wads. Why do they want to make their own wads? Because they want to be able to make it custom for their loads to make it outperform anything else in the industry. That's why they bought their own wad machine. And on top of it being biodegradable and friendly to the environment. But the fact is they really wanted to do it so they could tweak it, change the slits, change the density of the plastic, change the materials, change the shock cup, change how it performed, change how and when it separates from the shot based on what they wanted it to look like, right? And what they want it to look like, I don't know what they were striving for, but that's what they're doing as leaders in the industry. Then they bought their own primer machine. They're doing 10,000 primers an hour, and they have full control over their own priming machine now. So 
they're doing things to help the the um, not only your economy but your performance. They are the cheapest bismuth in the industry, and they're just leaders. They're they're doing what they can to try to help us have a superior product. Other companies are not doing that, right? I'm not saying no other company. I'm saying in regards to bismuth, there's not really another company that's doing it that I know of right now. There might be companies that are up and coming behind the scenes that are trying to do something really good. I'm not in a position to promote them yet because they're at the infant stage of doing it. They're not really there yet. There will yeah, be a lot of lessons to learn. Yeah, there, yeah. there will be. There's some companies <clears throat> up and coming that that I have my eye on that I think are going to do really well and do good things for us. Um, but right now, Boss is the leader when it comes to bismuth. Winchester makes good bismuth. Kent makes good bismuth. Winchester kicks like a mule. Yeah. That is <laughs> hard. Um, lots of muzzle rise, lots of felt recoil. Kent. They make good stuff, but they push it too fast. It blows open way too early, and it's really expensive. So there's not really an advantage, in my opinion. All good companies, but, you know, I promote one, and that's Boss because of what they do. Um, When it comes to TSS, which is a whole nother world, right? Yep. Highly expensive, incredible performance, nothing like it. Boss makes a Tom load, Boss Tom, and they make it for Turkey. They don't really market a waterfowl load yet. I think they will. But right now they make an incredible Turkey load. Um, But, again, Apex makes a really good TSS load that's good for waterfowl. So when I'm shooting my sub gauges and I'm going to go hunting waterfowl, chances are I'm going to use Apex TSS if I'm using a factory load. With that said, I shoot a lot of ducks and marsh hens. I call them rail because they are rail. I shoot a lot of stuff like that with Boss Tom um, in my 410 and my 28 gauge. I love it. I do great with it. Um, With that said, I do a lot of my own reloading. And I do my own reloading because I love doing it. And I can tailor my loads to the way that I like it as a ballistics expert. And Mm -hmm. It suits the way I shoot. Like I said, I shot 100 pounds of TSS last year. I would not want to pay another company to do that. (laughs) Yeah, no kidding. (laughs) Nope. I'd much rather have a new sports car or a... (laughs) So so some people can afford to do it. Um, I just choose not to. So I I load my own because I shoot a lot of it. And... Mm -hmm. I shoot a lot of it because of what I do and who I am. You know, I, I don't only shoot it at ducks. I go out and I shoot pheasants off of towers. I shoot all sorts of different things. So I shoot a lot. Yeah. Um, I'll, I'll go shoot on clay targets to do ballistic testing. You know, and, and when I go out and shoot clay targets, some days I'll shoot a thousand targets in one session. You know, so, so I shoot a lot. And that all transfers and transpires and, and is accredited toward the way I shoot, um, the things I've learned, um, the way, the reason that I know the ammo that's on the market the way I do, the way I know the chokes that are on the market, the way I know the guns that are on the market, and the people behind all those products because I've sat down and, and had beers with them 
on numerous occasions and talked about these things. So I know it inside and out. It's not that I'm just a choke manufacturer. I shot my first duck flying when I was five years old. You know, I became a master class shooter um, in sporting clays quite a few years ago. You know, um, I've shot a million clay targets in my time, you know. So, so it comes with doing and, and with doing comes learning. So that's why I'm at where I am today. So that's insane. It's absolutely incredible. Yep. <laughs> I mean, it is, is awesome. <laughs> I've been blessed to be able to do it. Um, oh, absolutely. That was the path I chose and it all fell into place. You know, I was, I was, I went to trade school as a machinist. I became a machinist. I got hired at an aerospace defense company in 1988 when I was a senior and I worked there for 18 years. So, and then when I left there, I went on my own and had my own machine shop doing the same aerospace work and defense work. Um, and then when the economy tanked in 2008, I knew that I had the best joke in the world because I fixed every problem choke tubes had. I patented it, praying it would help pay the bills. And it did, you know, and it, it just took off. And then, you know, I never looked back. And, you know, there are, oh, gosh, many, uh, I would say 2000, 2009 is when I patented it. 2010, 11, 12, 13, 14. I mean, I competed in sporting clays to basically bring that choke to life and bring Muller chokes to life, but I would say between 2009 and 2019, I barely got to go duck hunt <laughs> because it was all about marketing my my feather light clay target chokes, competing on the sporting clay circuit, going to shows, selling chokes at my booth trying to compete and sell chokes, which I stopped doing. Um, and then it just <laughs> sitting behind my boots selling chokes all over the country for many years, you mm -hmm. know. And now I've gone full circle, and now I'm at the point where I can break away and put more time into the hunting aspect of it again, which is why now people are learning about the hunting chokes that I've put into full production a year and a half ago and started marketing them really heavy, over the last 12 months. So, so that's why the hunting series is starting to gain strength because people are finding out about them. Yeah. You know, so it's, it's been a road. So, it's an incredible journey. Yeah. I mean, it's, <laughs> it's yeah, awesome. It's been a journey, man. It went from uh, 16 hours a day, seven days a week, sleeping on my machine shop floor, trying to catch a few Z's when I was ready to pass out and couldn't see straight. <laughs> Uh, now we're, you know, traveling, hunting, and doing a lot of fishing. And I started a new fishing lure business, but we don't have to do that. <laughs> I wasn't busy enough. I say, you just don't like free time, do you? Uh, I, I don't. <laughs> yeah. We do a lot of fishing, and I decided, hey, man, I need to do something on the fishing end of things. So I just started doing that, which you guys will find out about. So, Love it. For sure. Awesome. It's going great, man. But but the teaching and the ballistics and the shotgunning and it's all uh, it's all really come together. And I really love you know teaching and hopefully 
inspiring people and and helping out and helping people become the best they can. Yeah, it's awesome. So I think what do you, I I want to send you on one last tangent, maybe oh, here. here. We go. Well, okay, so two things, actually. So we talked about the marketing hype earlier with all these different companies, right? I've been told, and I started doing it, and I think I believe it, that a three-inch shell patterns better than a a three-and-a-half. Okay. Now, your chokes might be a little different because your chokes are just for the gun and not for specific shells, but I started shooting three-inch shells, and I've noticed a night and day difference between, you know, either absolutely, you know, hitting a bird and absolutely smashing it or just a clean miss. <clears throat> like my cripple rate's gone down. My hit rate's gone up. And you went, uh, explain you that. Went, you went from three and a half to three inch and you're doing better? Correct. So what gun are you shooting? A Benelli? Uh, I was shooting my Rite. Yeah. So same as a Benelli. Yeah. In regards to ballistics and bore diameter in the barrel and choke system. Yep. So that's why. And and so I'll explain that. So so Mike, you, you like three and a half inch, three inch? What do I'm you like? Three and a half inch guy. What gun do you shoot? Uh Beretta A four hundred. Okay. So let me explain let me shine something upon everyone. So barrel bore diameter, let's talk about that, right? Barrel bore diameter is the ID, the inside diameter of your barrel, that goes all the way down the length of your barrel, regardless of the length, and then it goes into your choke, right? A Benelli has an average bore diameter of 722. Some of them are 719, some are 724. They average, excuse me very much. (laughs) They average 722. So let's call it 720 for a round number, 720 thousandths of an inch diameter ID in a Benelli Cryo Plus barrel or a Rite, okay? Let's take a Beretta A400 barrel, which is 18.6 millimeter, which is 732. They average from 732 to 735. Now, let's go to a Browning Invector Plus or Invector DS gun like the 725 or A5 or any of the Satori's, um, Browning Golds, all that. Those, and by the way, Winchester SX4 and SX3, those barrel bore diameters average 742 to 747 with the average being around 745 these days. How is there that? I mean... All in 12 gauges. How is there that much variation? I mean, is, ah, this is blown. Okay, now my mind's really getting blown. So 12 gauge is not a 12 gauge. <laughs> so every gun manufacturer, just like every ammo company and every choke company and every other company think their product is superior to everybody else's, or they want to at least give you something to make you think that. So if Browning advertises in their marketing oh our guns come with an overboard barrel that's going to help with back pressure and give you better ballistics and less deformed pellets on ignition because we have an overboard barrel directly from the factory so you don't have to do it aftermarket and pay for it Mm. okay 
gotcha. versus Benelli, where they have their cryogenically treated barrels and chokes. No, they don't. <laughs> no. Um, and even if they did, like it really matters that you're going to deep freeze your molecularly structured barrels so they don't move and they're stabilized. <laughs> Are we uh, snipers shooting things at a thousand yards with a single projectile? No, we are not. We're shooting 200 BBs coming out like a swarm of bees. Stupid velocity spreading out all over the place. So I'm really glad that you're spending money cryogenically treating your barrels and chokes, which you're not really doing. Um, Maybe you are. And if you are, Lord help you. Um, (laughs) So, so. Basically, we've gone from 720 bore in a Benelli or an old mobile choke Beretta to a 745 bore Browning or Winchester to the 835-935 Ultimag Mossberg that has a 12-gauge bore of 777 thousandths of an inch, which is truly a 10-gauge bore on a 12-gauge platform. So... (laughs) Let's let's take that Mossberg out of the equation because it's absurdly large for a 12 gauge. And let's just stick with 720 Benelli Rite and let's go with 745 Browning Winchester. We do simple math, 745 minus 720. That's 25 thousandths of an inch difference before you even put a choke in the gun. 25 thousandths, last I checked, is an improved modified which is basically, for argument's sake, a full choke difference, okay? So the reason that your Benelli does not like three-and-a-half-inch payloads is because it's too much stuff going down the pipe. Your Beretta A400 has a 732 to 735 barrel bore diameter. It likes that a little better. If you take that same three and a half inch ounce of 916s load and shove it down a barrel of a Browning with a 745 bore, it's going to like it a whole lot better. If you shove it down at 835, 935 Ultimac 10 gauge bore, you're going to really love that gun. <laughs> That's why that gun shines with big heavy turkey loads. Yeah. Okay. okay. So you can shove two ounces of shot down a 777 bore and love it a lot, okay? But you cannot shove that down a 720 pipe and expect it to be consistent or good in any way, shape, or form, okay? So this is where barrel bore diameters come into play, and it's really important for people to understand and know. Um, Because if you start thinking about physics and science and mathematical equations and mass and velocity and back pressures and, and squeezing, um, you know, you take a bunch of round balls and you squeeze them, they form a Ballantine L, they form a triangle, which spaces between that triangle. Well, that's what they do when they're going down your barrel also. The reason lead's forgiving is because it smushes and gives. Steel and tungsten do not smush and give. They just make your barrel move out of the way. <laughs> your choke just move out of the way. So if the barrel and the choke cannot move out of the way, what happens? Extreme forces are applied upon those BBs. So when they come out of the barrel, they just explode outward. Okay. And that's why a lot of turkey chokes are over constricted and a lot of waterfowl chokes are over constricted 
And what people are doing is they're shooting overly constricted chokes because they think they need it to kill stuff and they're blowing their patterns and their blown patterns are patterning worse than a skeet pattern. But they don't know this because they don't pattern. They just miss ducks and pull feathers out of them and think it's because they're shooting crappy steel shot. It's not. There's a lot more involved in that. So these are the things that people don't know because they don't understand because they've never done it. They right. just listen to marketing. And um, so this is what I'm trying to teach people. So yes, my chokes are the best. They do pattern the best because of what I've done and what I've created. But if you're shooting the wrong ammo and the wrong size shot and the wrong velocity and the wrong payload, even my chokes are not going to shine. They're still going to look pretty crappy when you try to shoot a duck at 35 or 40 yards. Mm -hmm. I can't, I can't compete with physics. You know, that's, that's, that's your job to, to put the right ammo in the gun to start with. And then my chokes are going to make it better than it can be anywhere else. I'm mind blown. Impressive. My head hurts. <laughs> so, all right, one more that Mikey wanted to know. And we kind of, kind of hit on it a little bit earlier. Ported chokes versus non-ported chokes. <laughs> and when are you coming out with ported chokes? <laughs> yeah. when, when I am no longer in business. <laughs> Oh, boy. No. Shots fired. So here's the deal. I'll tell you a little little story about porting. So ported chokes. Choke tube companies tell you they do it for two reasons. It reduces felt recoil and it reduces muzzle jump, muzzle rise, muzzle flip, however you want to call it. So here's the facts about that. In order to reduce muzzle jump or muzzle flip or muzzle rise, you have to force gases upward to force the barrels downward. It's just physics, right? And it makes sense when you say it. How can something ported 360 degrees around force gases upward to force the barrels down? It can't. It's a lie. Okay? It's a flash suppressor at best. <laughs> okay? Recoil happens before it gets to the choke. So obviously a ported choke doesn't do any good with felt recoil. That's a lie. So why do choke tube companies port chokes? There's four reasons. Number one, it reduces weight of the choke. So if they have those, some chokes out there are very long, very big, very extended. Um, they're very heavy. If they didn't port the chokes, I don't think a lot of people would buy them because it would be like having a decoy anchor on the end of your gun. <laughs> Could you imagine two of those in an over and under for the people I use an over and under for hunting? My Lord, you know? So that's one reason. The other reason is the fishing lure effect. The porting looks really freaking cool, so people buy it, <laughs> okay? And that's a fact. It's been a proven thing in the U.S. market. So it looks really cool, people buy it. Then the other reason they do it is because they can change the style of the porting, the shape of the porting, the amount of holds, the angle of it, the diameter of it, and next year sell you a new and improved choke tube and take your money again. Okay. Um, the other reason they do it is because they actually think it does do some good because they've listened to false marketing since 1950. 
okay? They don't know for themselves. They just think it really helps, and they feel like it does. But the fact is, it doesn't. What porting chokes really does, number one, it muzzle blasts your buddies and your dog in the blind. It builds up healthy plastic and carbon. Um, so bad as if you have an over and under, sometimes the carbon builds up in between the two chokes and those two chokes become one and you have to chisel it away to get the chokes out of the gun. Um, when that carbon seals off the car, the ports, um, on the bottom of the top choke and the top of the bottom choke, now you only have 270 degrees of open porting. What do you think that does to the gases on the wad and the shot column when it comes through that choke? It deflects it. It can change your point of impact. I've proven it. Okay, so that's not good. Then the other thing is it offers a weak fracturing point in one of the most um, one of the areas of the choke that has the most outward forces where the shock column is being constricted, which is at the end of the choke. So that's where all the outward forces are, where the taper comes into the parallel and out through the parallel section. So if you have porting, you offer weakness of, of fracture points, right, where chokes can crack or break. You see that all over the industry, unfortunately. Um, and then the other thing that they basically do is just... Oh, I already said the, the porting, I mean, the, the plastic and the carbon, but the other thing they do, the fourth thing they do, it disrupts the gases around the shock column, leaving you a hot core pattern. So basically if you shoot all ported chokes that are in the industry, whether it's with lead target loads or with steel loads or bismuth loads or tungsten loads, what you're going to find is that they all have a hotter core than a non-ported choke. And what that means is the inside 20-inch core is much denser with a lot of pellets compared to the outside fringe of the pattern. Let's call it your 30-inch outer fringe. And the reason for that is because of the way that the gases are escaping around the shock column when it exits the board due to the porting. Um, so these are all the things that a ported choke do or does. So it so, sounds like you're not a fan of ported chokes at all. I'm not, <laughs> no, you know, and, and when I developed jokes, when I went through all of this testing, when I told you I, ch I changed and tried every imaginable geometry along with some you can't even imagine, believe me, I tried every style of porting you can imagine and some you wouldn't even imagine. I mean, I did, I did lasering, I did water jetting, I did, I did all sorts of different types of slotted porting, grooved porting, round porting, elliptical, trapezoidal. I mean, I did squares, I did triangles, I did I did hexagons. I mean, I did every angle. I I did every amount. I mean, you couldn't even imagine what I've done. <laughs> and every single test, every single time with every single ammo in every single gun, porting failed to impress me in any way shape or form. So that's why none of my chokes will ever have porting. Perfect. That's pretty solid. Perfect. Tracy just said his mind's blown too. So I'm glad I'm not alone anymore. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Oh yeah. It, do it does look really cool and people do buy it because it looks cool, but it doesn't do anything beneficial for you whatsoever. Right. I can say um, that I've never owned a ported choke. No, 
no, no, never. No, so. and here, here's one of the things that's no, well, it's not known by a lot of people in the industry. It's known by some of us in the industry because we've we've dealt with companies, but Browning, Belgian Brownings in Belgium, they call all the shots for the American-made Brownings. Well, if you go to Belgium or you look at Belgian Brownings, you will never see a ported barrel. But all the American-made Brownings all have porting on the sides of the barrels, which, let's face it, what are ported barrels? If porting's on the sides of barrels, what is it doing for us? Porting on barrels is supposed to be on the top of the barrel to force the gases upward, right? To force the barrel down. That's the only reason we port a barrel in a rifle or in a shotgun. Why are the ports facing 90 degrees outward? Because it's a marketing thing, because the American cool. people like the way it looks and they buy it. So the Belgian browning market or the people in the Belgian browning facility that's high up tell the Americans that they have to port the browning barrels in America because people buy them. So <sighs> one on one fishing lure effect. <laughs> Got to catch like the that. catch the fishermen and not the fish. That's right. You know how many you know how many thousands of lures I have sitting on the garage <laughs> boxes that look amazing, and I have not caught a single fish on them. Yeah, I'm right there with you. Yep. <laughs> I just fell for for a new lure series that came out last year from from a very very successful good company, and I'm like, these things are going to be incredible. I bought every color, every size. And I went out, I threw them in the middle of feeding bluefish and didn't get a hit. Oh, that's bad. Oh, I could have caught a bluefish on a floating clothespin. Yeah, right. This lure. I was, I was dumbfounded. I couldn't believe it. Oh. The reason I threw it into the feeding bluefish is because the feeding striped bass wouldn't hit it. Oof. And I was thrown, I was catching feeding striped bass up to 44 inches on Castmaster every cast, on on finesses every cast, on poppers every cast, on Rapala crankbaits every cast, on you name it, every cast, bucktails, any color. I was catching striped bass every cast. I'm like, ooh, I'm gonna try this. I couldn't catch a fish on it. <laughs> Uh, I'm like, I say, and those fish, when they're feeding like that, you could damn near catch them on a plain hook. Happening. So then I got into a school of bluefish feeding, and I cast it into the bluefish just because I almost wanted the bluefish to chop them up because it's a soft bait. I couldn't get a hit. I'm like, I will never use that lure again, even if people show me pictures that yeah. I'm catching them with. That is yeah. tragic. It is tragic because they're expensive. <laughs> so I fell for it. Yep, that happens. It's no different in anything else. It's the same thing with choke tubes. It's with the fancy boxes on the ammo. It's with the pretty shiny porting on the gun barrels. It's the same old, same old. It's like engraving on a gun, right? It doesn't make it shoot better, but it sure gets us to pay more thousands of dollars for it. Oh, they look pretty, though. Yeah, they do. <laughs> So, but yeah, that's the deal. That sounds pretty cool. Well, uh, Jim, I, you know, we're, we're going to have to wrap it up here shortly, but, uh, I, I, I cannot, I, the amount of knowledge that is in your head and the capability, all the things that you've done, um, 
man, this is, this has been one hell of a treat. Um, you know, I, I, Bennett said this was going to be one of our best podcasts, and I can say that this has been one of our best podcasts. And uh, I think this is by far one of the most informative podcasts we've ever done. Without a doubt. I'm super happy about this one. This yeah, is awesome. this has been an amazing hour. Yeah. Hour and a half almost. That's cool. Oh, yeah. I apologize for going off on so no, 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 not at all. You got, you got nothing to apologize for. I just for. wanted people to understand the path I was going down, you know? Well, that's the, that's the point of the podcast. And, yeah. uh, you know, I, I, me and Benny decided that, you know, this, you know, we wanted to put podcasts out. We, we, you know, because we want to inform people on stuff, you can go and, you know, unfortunately, you know, uh, articles like field and stream, you know, magazines like that. And, you know, you can buy your way into those to get them to advertise and market you and all that other stuff. And, you know, that's kind of the the opposite of what we wanted to do with this podcast. And that's why we, you know, we're glad that you're here and we've had other folks as well. So, um, you know, I, I, I cannot thank you enough, first and foremost, coming on. But secondly, how do people find you? How do they, how do they buy your chokes? Um, and, uh, and, and how do they, you know, get in touch with you for stuff? You know, so, so basically the best way to do it is, you know, we have a really cool website. Um, our website is mullerchokes.com and that's spelled M-U-L-L-E-R chokes.com. Gotcha. And then, um, you know, our website directly for placing orders via email is info at mullerchokes.com. And then our direct phone number to place orders or ask us questions or any type of customer support is uh, 904-805-4354. And uh, those phones are available Monday through Friday, 9 to 3.30 um, Eastern Standard Time. That's in Florida. And uh, Devin, Devin is uh, my fulfillment manager. He's also a guru and answering all these phone calls, emails, and helping all you, all of you. Um, he's the one that does all that. And then um, Lauren is the one that's the executive admin. Um, she does all of the other stuff behind the scenes, the marketing, the purchase orders, the scheduling, and making everything run and get chokes in the bins for everybody. <laughs> then um, if you call Devin and you cannot um, – get the help you're looking for or need Devin forwards you to me. So that's who you're dealing with. with One step away. Yeah. From the man. You're only dealing with people that know what they're talking about. That can truly help you that know about guns, chokes, ammo, ballistics. Um, They know what a modified choke is. They know what a 28 gauge means. (laughs) (laughs) Solid. You're not talking to somebody that was hired off the street as a volunteer fireman um, <laughs> that, that doesn't know the difference between target loads and hunting loads. You know what I'm saying? Absolutely. Or, or think that number nine shot is double up buck nine pellets, you know? <laughs> <laughs> That's close. That's yeah, close. Yeah, who's, hey, who's one, one other thing I did want to mention, and, yeah. and I, I didn't mean to – um, extend this, but one thing I did not mention about my chokes in the H2O hunting series, something that's really important for people to know when I developed the passing choke, you know, I have decoy passing UFO, UFO doubles as my turkey choke. 
but my passing choke doubles as my big game choke. So that choke is incredible for coyote, hogs, deer, bear, anything that you can shoot um, buckshot or slugs. My passing choke is incredible. I've got three national three gun champions that have won with that choke. Um, it gives 100% double up buck and triple up buck patterns at 40 yards. Um, and it's great for slugs as well, whether they're foster style or sabot. People are just loving them, loving them. So I wanted to put that out there so people do know if you're a coyote hunter, hog hunter, deer hunter, whatever, muller choke, passing choke is the one you want. Good deal. That's awesome. Good deal. I want to get one of those now too. <laughs> We have a lot of shooting videos, Mike. Yeah, it's, it's, what I got. <laughs> it's a passing joke. Yep. Coyote tees, TSS, stainless steel ball bearings. I don't care. <laughs> yeah, I say <laughs> bolts, screws. Yeah, whatever you can throw in it. <laughs> do whatever you got to do. Yeah. Uh, that's awesome. Yep. All right, Benny. Uh, you ready to take us home? That's all I got, uh, Jimmy. Thank you again so much for your time and joining us here tonight and. You know, imparting all of this knowledge on us. I'm going to go try to repair my melted brain for an hour. And yep. uh, I'm going to have to watch this one back like two or three times to grasp all that. But I loved every second of it. Thank you so much. Oh, you're sure. very welcome. Thank you, gentlemen. Right on. Well, we'll see y'all again next week. Bye, see ya. Everybody. You've been listening to The Hunting Quest. No matter how crazy, high-tech, or lazy the rest of the country gets, we will always be hunting and fishing. If that's you, you've found your new family. Thanks for listening to the show. Make sure to like, rate, and review. And we'll be back soon. Reach out to us by email at info at thehuntingquest.com and check us out on Instagram and YouTube at The Hunting Quest. See you next time.